uh, just just so you know, the next really halfway through Lent, the readings the readings sort of just ascend into the highest heavens. I mean, the next the readings that you have today are some of the the best in the Christian canon. They're just incredible. Uh, last week, of course, also was one of those weeks where the reading, uh, the gospel reading, as you might remember, was the story of the prodigal son. It's one of those readings where it is so potent you almost can just simply read it. There's almost no commentary required. It is so powerful and forceful. Uh, sat here last week, um, almost teary, just at how incredible that story is. And what that parable shows us, just to remind you, that parable, the prodigal son, you'll remember, it shows us about God's incredible, extravagant devotion to us. He is remarkably devoted to his people. Remember, just like that father who receives back his son, God the Father receives us, regardless of where we've been, what we've been doing, or what we've said about him. His arms are always, always open to us, so devoted to us is he. But today's readings switch the tables just a little bit. Today is not as much about God's devotion to us. Our readings today are more about our devotion to him. Today we learn about our devotion to God. That's the topic that all of these readings seem to coalesce on. In our gospel reading, we see how Mary of Bethany washes Jesus' feet with her own hair. It looked perfume. And then in Philippians, we see Paul boast about all of his accomplishments and then describe how they are worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. You see, these, these people, these figures, these saints in Scripture are incredibly devoted to Jesus Christ. And so simply put, that's what I want to talk about with you all today, why we would want to devote ourselves to Jesus, what our devotion to Jesus could look like, and how we might begin to do it afresh. Now, as you all might know, there is a whole, um, there is a whole category of uh, church life devoted to looking at the incredible lives of those who have given, their, given themselves to Jesus. Uh, it's, uh, the term for it is hagiography. It sounds like I'm choking, but that's not. It's, the term is hagiography. It comes from that Greek word hagios, like the Hagia Sophia. It just means holy. And so it's the study of the holy people of God, the saints of God. In some Christian circles, you probably are aware, this isn't a practice or a, um, an area of intellectual life that's all that well um, studied. Sometimes uh, other Christian groups view it with a kind of suspicion. And yet, everybody tends to do it. For instance, if you grew up in the Wesleyan tradition, the reason your tradition is called the Wesleyan tradition is because they really loved John Wesley. Or if you are Lutheran, the reason that Lutherans are called Lutherans is because they really, really like Martin Luther. You see where I'm going. Everybody has some sort of figure that they laud and really look up to. We all have saints. Even non-denominational pastors, as soon as you talk with a friend maybe who goes to a large non-denominational church, you ask them about their pastor, they probably tend to think of that pastor in these sort of hagiographic terms. So everyone does it. But Christians are the only people who sort of look to suspicion, look with suspicion to the saints. I think, uh, as far as I can tell, most non-religious modern people also are as well. They're skeptical about the idea that there could be actual uh, holy people. They'd say, surely uh, this person or that person has some, has some dark side. Nobody's perfect. Everyone has something that they hide. Everyone has an angle. In fact, I read uh, an article last week 
um, it called on college professors to do actual history, not hagiography. So you see, even that term has become somewhat questionable, looking to the holy people of God. That term is now uh, in all, really in all measures, bankrupt. Why? Because there aren't special people. There's complicated people. Nobody's really that amazing. How could they be? But you see, there's an immense problem with this attitude. And it's not just that everyone has saints, whether it be Martin Luther or John Wesley or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Ronald Reagan or something. The real problem is when Christians look to their saints with admiration and affection and respect, they're not doing it in order to prove that there are perfect people. That is, we don't look to saints to prove what people could be. It's not about the upper limits of human morality or something. That's called Pelagianism. It's a kind of legalism. It was uh, designated as a heresy almost 2,000 years ago. You see, Christians, the people of God, look to those who are profoundly devoted to God not to see how they stack up, but to be encouraged. We look to the saints to be led on, to have our spirits buoyed, to have our hearts nourished and encouraged. And you might think, that doesn't really sound like a dramatic difference, but it is. Because think about it. Everyone that you and I know, all of our friends, all of our family, we all have idols. Everyone has some person or group that they aspire to be like, but hidden deep down, our thinking quickly moves, think about it, reflect on this, our thinking quickly moves from, gosh, I'd really like to be like that person, to I wonder if I'll ever be like that person, and then eventually to I'll never be as smart as that person, or as good looking, or as intelligent, or as fun, or uh, as successful. You see, that's what idols want you to do. They beg us to compare our lives with theirs and then to serve them forever. Sort of like this. I had some friends who were in uh, law school, and they all competed with one another. They acted like they didn't, but they all really did because they knew that when you're in law school, you're graded on a curve, and so it doesn't actually matter how smart you are. It only matters how well you do in relation to your peers. And I think the world is like that. It's deceptive. It says, look at your idols and be inspired. But what it really means is, see how you stack up. See how close you might be able to get, but you'll always need to do and to be more. You'll always have to do more. And you see, Christianity, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite of this vision. The saints of God say, learn from what I did. Be encouraged by what I've done. Look at how amazing Jesus is. Look at what he's done for me. Think about what he could do for you. Do you see the difference there? They're not the same. And so in our Philippians reading that we just heard Daniel read, what Paul asks us to do is exactly this. He says, uh, he basically goes through his whole resume. That's the beginning of the reading. And he says, if anybody should be confident in their worldly religious status, it is in fact me. He says, I did everything right. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a leader in the most rigorous sect of the Jewish people. Then he says, in terms of my moral standing, I was absolutely flawless. And for us, I think that might sound 
Maybe you think that sounds sort of prudish. We don't tend to mix our religious hierarchies with our professional or social hierarchies, but for these people, it's one and the same. So if we translate, what Paul is saying basically is, I went to all of the right schools. I knew all of the right people. I had all the tokens of real status and real power, and I count it all as worthless. He even uses the term trash, garbage. It's nothing. Why? He says, I played the game. I played that game where you compete to have face and light of your idols, and I played it very well. But it is nothing in comparison with the life that you can have in Christ Jesus. Life in Christ, you see, he says it never requires you to establish your status on a curve. It only invites you into deeper and deeper life and fellowship. You see, Paul saying this is a remarkable thing because Paul, he could be triumphalistic, but he's not. He could be acting like a true saint, but he isn't. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, not that I have already achieved the state of perfect knowledge and trust in Jesus, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he says, this is important, brothers and sisters, imitate me. Walk according to the example you've seen given in us. See, he says, I am not the ultimate authority. What I have is only because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he says, but imitate me. Or maybe a better way of saying it is, walk alongside me. Come with me. Experience what I have experienced. Come and tap into the joy that I have. You see, that's amazing because Paul, Paul is a truly remarkable person. People like him rarely exist. And yet he says, come alongside me, flawed as I am. Walk, see the goodness that you can have in Christ Jesus. You see, to follow an idol, to follow an idol is to be continually disparaged. But to follow a saint is to be continually encouraged. The saints build you up. It's like this. One of my first mentors was this man named Bruce Jackson. Bruce, um, I'm not sure that Bruce went to college. Uh, Bruce was a uh, professional dog trainer. He had trained hunting dogs since he was uh, a young man. And he was successful at it. He did it for, um, you know, decades. One of his hands didn't quite close. It had been uh, damaged in some heavy machinery or something. Uh, and he lived way outside of town, down by a river. He probably wouldn't have described himself as a redneck, but he would have certainly said that he was country, if you know that term. He loved to spend time in the woods, and he loved to bring other people with him to tell him about uh, trees and birds and animals and all of the life in the woods that he loved. And he had become a Christian early on in his life through AA. His life had fallen apart. AA sort of helped him be honest and to meet God and to sort of reestablish himself in, uh, in the Christian faith. And uh, he had this incredible prayer life, an amazing prayer life, and a, and a wonderful way of encouraging other people. But eventually, Bruce uh, began to die. He got cancer, and so he was slowly sort of on the way out. And I'll never forget the last time I saw Bruce, I drove way out into the country down by the river to go see Bruce, and we were sitting together. And at the end of our time, we, I asked about 
we talked about all normal stuff and how he was feeling. And then I asked him, Bruce, how can I pray for you? And he couldn't talk all that well. He couldn't communicate very well. He was, at, he was close to the end. Uh, and I said, okay, I'll pray for you. And then he quickly responded, David, let, let me pray for you. And then he began to pray this prayer over me that was extraordinary and amazing, and it continued for minutes. And isn't that amazing, you see? Here's a guy at the very end of his life. He could be asking for all sorts of prayer requests, and the very first thing that he wants to do is to pray for someone else. You know, he didn't, he didn't say it. But what he meant was, see what I have. Don't you see what Christ Jesus has given me? Don't you see the kind of confidence, the purity of vision, the steadfastness God has given me? Don't you want it too? It was amazing. You see, that is exactly what a saint does. A saint encourages you, builds you up, draws you further in. And I think what is true about this story operates at both a larger magnitude and at a granular level as well. That is, you can study the saints. You can learn all about the Christians who were persecuted by Romans in the third century. You can learn about Macrina, who gave her life to support orthodoxy. You can learn about St. Teresa or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or the early missionaries to Japan, whoever it is. You can do all that. You should, actually. It would benefit you greatly. Your faith would be buoyed by learning about the saints of the Christian church. But what is also true of that large-scale level is true on the granular as well. What people often, here's what I mean, people often ask how they can get more involved at church or how they can get more engaged at St. George's. And I guarantee you that most of what the other clergy would say is what I would say. And it's, first thing you can do is just come to church. Just come to church. It's that simple. And we say that not to try, try to browbeat people or because not going to church is a sin or because we have to be here all the time. We say that. We would say that because all of us know and all of us have experienced to the core the way that if you simply continue showing up and you slowly start to develop relationships with other Christians who want to grow in their devotion to Jesus Christ, you will most certainly grow in your devotion to Jesus. I can almost guarantee it. I see it happen all of the time. It really isn't that complicated in some ways. The saints of God in history buoy your faith. So do the people who are sitting in the chairs right next to you, if you will let them. And so if you want your heart to be fixed on that which God commands and promises, which is what our collect of the day asks, then you and I will both need, we will need the communion of saints to help us along the way. You will need the communion of saints to help you to grow in your devotion to God. You will need those who have gone before you and those people who are sitting right beside you in order to grow in your devotion. St. Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. And someone in this very room can say the exact same thing to you as well. Well, finally, I think it's worth asking what it might look like to begin, to begin to do this work. It won't take long our gospel reading, we have this incredible display of devotion to God. It's an amazing story. Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. She did it with a perfume as well. It's called nard. Uh, nard is an oil that was carried on foot uh, from the Himalayas, so that would have been the full length of the Silk Road from the Himalayas all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. 
That's, that's almost 4,000 miles. In other words, this was incredibly precious, incredibly rare. And she pours out a pound of it onto his feet. And then she kneels down onto, onto the ground, unbinds her hair. She would have had her hair bound. And then she begins to wipe his feet with the nard and her hair. You see how visceral that is? It says the whole house was filled with the aroma, with the fragrance. In this scene, his uh, scholars debate about the significance of this scene. People say uh, that she's anointing Jesus for burial. The text says as much, actually. Some people describe how she is already enacting something that Jesus commands them to do later on. In other words, she is a sort of prefigurement of what Jesus wants out of the true disciple. There are even some people who describe this passage as uh, suggestive uh, in that it's uh, Mary could be perceived as the bride of Jesus Christ. But additionally, for most of church history, Mary of Bethany is thought to be the exact same woman as Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, at best, was not a wealthy woman, but at worst, was probably a prostitute. And so the, the, the simple fact that she would have had nard that would have been a year's wages, a year's wages, would have been curious. But what I want to focus on simply is this very basic act of Mary pouring out the costly perfume at Jesus' feet. I think what this action shows us on the most basic level is that if you and I, if we together would grow in our devotion to Jesus Christ, we will most certainly need to pour out that which is costly to us at his feet. If you want to grow in your affection for God, if you want to become more trustful in his promises, if you want to grow in your familiarity with the communion of the saints, you will need to break open, to pour out, to sacrifice that which is most costly to you. Remember, Mary was not a wealthy woman that money would have been power to a woman in her context. So I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what is most costly, what is most precious for you. It could be your time, it could be your attention, it could be your sense of pride or self-worth. But whatever it is, I invite you, Lent 5, last Sunday in Lent, pour out that which is most costly to you. And I do promise you, I promise you, you do that and you will be rewarded beyond measure. Your heart will become more fixed. Your loneliness will give way to intimacy. Your eyes will become more open to God's goodness if you cast down whatever keeps you from Jesus and his communion of saints. So, friends, in this final week of Lent, encourage one another, put off whatever it is that hinders you, and let your encouragement carry one another into deeper and deeper devotion to Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.